0: Hello and welcome to Won't You Sing With Me, a podcast by me, Camille Harris from the Silly Jazz Band. Join me as I talk to fellow children's musicians about their work. Why do they make children's music? What's important about it? What makes a good children's song? What is different between a kid's song versus an adult song? And why do they do what they do? This is a podcast for fellow children's musicians as well as educators and parents, but little ones can listen as well. Thanks so much for tuning in and enjoy the conversation.
1: LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss, and if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply.
0: On with the show. Hello, and thank you for listening today to Won't You Sing With Me. Today, we're talking to Dennis Scott, who's I'm really excited to have on. He is a heavy hitter, as they say, in the music industry. For the past 20 years, Dennis has been writing and producing original music and songs for television, recordings, video, radio, and theatrical events. He is the recipient of a Grammy, an Emmy, and the Parents Choice Award. Awesome. His songs have been recorded by artists such as Ray Charles, Faith Hill, Crystal Gale, the Charlie Daniels band, Kathy Lee Gifford, Glenn Campbell, Tanya Tucker, Loretta Lynn, and I think most impressively, The Muppets. Yay. <laughs> Yay. That's like the coolest thing you've ever heard. That's the best credit you could ever have, <laughs> in my uh, opinion. Yeah. So, I'll, um, I'll, welcome. Agree with that. Yeah, you would.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: We can just start real quick. We can come back to the theory and the, everything behind children's music and why you do it. But um, what was it like writing for The Muppets? And what song did you write?
3: Wow. Well, <laughs> It's a it's a long story but uh to answer your question it was an out of body experience to work with Jim Henson just to have Ugh. him standing there and uh and also the other people who were part of Sesame Street like the man who plays Big Bird who I've gotten to know over the years and really Carol Spinney. wow and uh and they you know it was interesting my my story about Jim Henson was a uh, as you can imagine, he was a very busy guy. And when I was working with Sesame Street, they said, OK, you can have Jim in the studio from one twelve to 2.46. <laughs> and at 2.46, he leaves. That's it. That's the time you have and you have to get it done. So wow. there was a little bit of a stress, too. But he, uh, he came very prepared. And as you expect, he was totally professional, and, but also a lot of fun to work with. So, yeah, that, w- that was pretty cool.
0: That's really cool. Um, is there is there a song in particular that you wrote?
3: Uh, I wrote a couple of songs for this. Uh, the first album I did for Sesame Street, it was a country-themed Sesame Street album called Sesame Country. Amazing. So um, there was I wrote a, a title song for it called Sesame Jamboree, which everybody in the cast would sing. But then um, there was a song that The Count was going to sing as a duet with Loretta Lynn. Wow. So uh, with a co-writer of mine, Paul Porns, we wrote something called Count on Me. Uh, and you have the Count singing along with Loretta. Uh, so, so that was cool. And then for Tanya Tucker, I wrote, because uh, she's from Texas, and we were talking about Sesame Street is my home, Texas is my home. So I wrote a song called You'll Never Take the Texas Out of Me. And then she sings that with Big Bird, and he comes back and says, you'll never take Sesame Street out of me, you know. Or,
0: yeah, that's yeah, good.
3: That was you can't see me, but I'm I'm trying to impersonate Big Bird.
0: Is that actually the voice was pretty good. I was just really impressed right now.
3: (laughs) Why thank you.
0: Whoa. You're welcome. That wow, that was that's that's really cool. That's kind of I feel like the dream that you got to do that.
3: Yeah, it was pretty unexpected. I when I first started working with Sesame Street, I really didn't have a job. I really wasn't hired. I had made my first entree into the children's music industry. I would worked on a, a small budget album and I took it to Sesame Street and said, Hey, look what, look what I did here. And they said, well, well, we don't know what to do with it, but I tell you what, this is the uh, the man who was head of the record label there. Sesame Street actually had its own record label for a while. really. And he oh. said, well, if you want to come in a few times a week, uh, we're working on the Sesame country themed album. If you want to come in on your own, no pay, just uh, make phone calls, try to get different artists to be on this album, um, and we'll see where that leads. And you know, I was younger and ambitious and you know, ready to go, so I said, sure, I'll do that and put on a tie, and I'd walk into the Sesame Street offices, and I'd call everybody you can imagine in this field of country music, from Willie Nelson to Dolly Parton, and uh, finally got those four people to be on the album, which was L- L- Loretta Lynn. Crystal Gale, Glenn Campbell, the great Glenn Campbell, and Tanya Tucker, wow. who he was dating at the time. which oh, okay. That's another interesting dynamic to the whole thing. And, yeah. And then once that happened, um, the uh, president of the label said, hey, do you want to record it? And do you want to produce it? And at that point, I had not technically produced an album. I had been producing my own little demos on my four-track recorder. And, uh, cool but my mother said, never say no. So I said, sure, I'd love to do that. And oh, wow. so it was really baptism by fire. I uh, you know, I learned the ropes and I surrounded myself with very talented people in Nashville and strongly recommended to folks at Sesame Street. It's a country album. We got to do this in Nashville, Tennessee. I mean, because they had their own in-house band, which they used for all the music here on Sesame Street, but I felt this was a little different. So I got to work with great musicians like Charlie McCoy, and he was my music contractor for it. So I'm giving you a long-winded answer, but the uh, the fact of the matter is, uh, it was a a great learning experience, and I tried to learn from the best. I mean,
0: that's that's again, that's the dream, and that's the ideal, the ideal way to learn. And to the long-winded answer thing, this is a podcast, so this is the medium for that type of answer. Okay, so. great. Don't worry. Next time, I'm just I'm just listening, wrapped and interested. And I'm sure all the listeners will be too, because it's it's something to know that the first thing you did for Sesame Street, you were just doing pro bono, and I guess probably credit and royalties and publishing rights.
3: At the time, it just seemed like the thing to do, and uh, it it turned out to be a great decision because that album went on to win my first Grammy. So wow. and when that happened, I thought, hmm well, maybe this is where I belong.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Wow, so that's, so wait, what was your album before that that you mentioned? What was the first low-budget children's album?
3: Oh, interesting question. There was a company called Wonderland Records, which was formerly known as Golden Records. And you'd have to be of a certain age to appreciate that, you know, in those days, there were little 45 records and they, they were like yellow. They were totally yellow. And it was this company that, had a lot of people, celebrities who would come in and and read children's books and sing children's songs like everyone from Danny Kaye to Captain Kangaroo. And uh, they'd been in the business a long time. They were were not as prominent as they used to be when I came on board, but they, I, okay, here's a long-winded response to this. I didn't know I was going to become so involved with children's music, I was starting to write songs. And I had written a novelty song called Captain Kirk's Disco Trek, which shows you... <laughs> awesome. What, that's about I'm a Trekkie, so... 1977 or so when disco was on the radio. And it was a novelty song. So there's not a lot you can do with novelty songs. Some, somebody said, well, why didn't you take it to this record label in new jersey called wonderland records and i said okay i'll do that and they didn't want it either but they said we like your writing do you want to write some parody songs to um, parody lyrics to well-known melodies and in this case it was a children's album so instead of anchors away it was please put your toys away put them away and things like that and that's the album that i Took to Sesame Street and said proudly, Here, look what I've done. <laughs> and at that time, it it wasn't that much, but I was, you know, proud of the way it turned out. And it was my first little baby step into the baby world.
0: So it was an album of parody songs that, uh, it was more than four tracks though, right? So it was re- recorded in a studio. Oh, yeah.
3: They, they took me into the studio. It wasn't like uh, a demo that you. I done. really actually yeah. was not the producer of that. Album. Somebody else produced it, a man named Ralph Stein, and uh, and he kind of guided me through. But he let me take liberties. He said, "Well, hire whoever you want to hire uh, to be the musicians," and uh, so I brought in people, and uh, and there was one original song on it. Uh, I guess I don't know uh, where I got the business sense to promote that, but I said, you know, I'm writing songs. I I have a song which would be kind of a good song to kind of wrap up the theme of this album. The album is called Songs That Tickle Your Funny Bone. So <laughs> I wrote a song called Songs. And that song made it onto the Sesame Street Country album as well. And it's so cool. it's a duet sung by Big Bird and Crystal Gale. And I'm I'm so glad that I I did. And I'm so glad that through the years I somehow been able to hold on to the publishing to that song because it's had lots of different uses which who would have expected it to it it was wow. used once in the Macy's day parade so you know that was interesting
0: that's pretty exciting yeah that would have been neat
3: i uh, I don't know how many people who are listeners uh, are in the music industry or writers and musicians but the holding on to the publishing is a hard thing to do it's harder now probably than ever but um and i had an opportunity at one point do you remember a show on tv called fame it was based on the movie so it was in the 80s and it was pretty popular and it was the music supervisor for that was a, a guy named charles koppelman who produced quite a few albums in from his company with artists i'm sure everybody would know and he said I'm, I'm I want to use the song but um you know we have to have all the publishing and, and I said well uh, I mean it's already the song's already been on a Grammy winning album I'm not sure I'm ready to just hand it over so I said I and he was producing Barbra Streisand and people like that so I thought well this is a big decision what do I do so uh I told him well he he was dangling the carrot in front of me saying okay well if you you sign this over, we'll get Streisand for you. And I said, okay, if that's true, then let's put it in the contract. If if within six months to a year, you produce Streisand singing my song, you've got the publishing. And well, guess what? Okay. He never did that. So the public, well, good. publishing reverted back to me. Oh, that's
0: so smart. Sounds like you made some really smart decisions early on. Well,
3: it was a tough decision because – He was a pretty powerful player in the industry. So, you know, and I'm still, you know, not fledgling, but I was, you know, finding my way through things. And it was, yeah, it was a little gutsy and a little, but it it turned out okay. I mean, it didn't turn out okay that Stryzan never recorded a song of mine, but other things happened to that song. So it's all good.
0: Right. Yeah, those decisions, you know, they're they're different decisions that people are making now. I've had had a couple opportunities, like somebody reached out to me to say, hey, I want to make this, we're making this YouTube channel. We'd like you to to write um, and produce and record these songs uh, and we'll make little videos and we'll give you like 200 bucks a song. And I said, okay, well, so you want me to do three roles, be a producer and writer and performer, you're saying? And it's only three, or it's only like two hundred dollars or something. And they said, "Yeah." And I said, "Okay." So then, do I keep the rights to the song, at least? And they said, "Oh, no, no, no." And I actually ended up being like, "You know what? No, that does not <laughs> that
2: does not work for me." Yeah.
0: Maybe if it was like Sesame Street or something that was a bigger thing, I might have done it. But I don't know. Those type of decisions are are hard, even on the micro scale, like what I was experiencing. Because I was like, "That would be cool,"
3: you know. Yeah, yeah. And unfortunately, but those those deals and offers are still out there. People ex- expect a lot. Um, and it's, you know, I, I think it depends on where you are in your career. I mean, sometimes there's a, a good reason to do something like that. And, um, and not uh, to be, to be honest, I I've had to sign away some of my publishing on things that I was not happy about, but it had other benefits to it. So you really have to weigh it, and uh, I, you know, admire you for sticking to your guns. There, it's they were asking quite a lot of you.
0: Yeah, <laughs> that was that moment where I said, "Wait, wait, you're wanting me to do all these three? But it, it would have been cool to do that type of gig, and I still would like that type of thing. But hopefully, I'll just I'll find something that actually works for me. I don't know. Mm-hmm it sometimes does get a little discouraging looking for stuff. And then those are the type of offers that you're getting. But I think if I just stick with it, it'll be okay. But it's,
3: I don't know how you feel about it. I I think my, the cutoff point for me is when somebody said, okay, we're going to take the publishing of your song and we're going to put our names on it as the composer. That that's where I think I have to draw the line.
0: So, so circling back real quick, have you released that Kirk disco song yet? Have you ever released it or is it just still sitting in a vault?
3: <laughs> no. Does
0: that want to hear no, that? Uh,
3: actually, it did get recorded in Denmark.
0: <laughs> Excellent.
3: My, my joke is that yeah, people bought it and used it for hubcaps on their cars. But uh, <laughs> uh, I can't say it, it rose high in the charts. But actually, thanks to uh, technology and where we are now, I did a search for it. On on YouTube and it showed up on YouTube, uh, not as a video, but really? just as the little album or forty five sleeve cover, and you can hear the hear the song and it's like, it's called Captain Kirk's Disco Trek.
0: Wait, I love
3: trying to be clever. <laughs> I
0: actually have a Spock song. I don't know if I've ever sent you that, but oh, I have a song called Spock is Hot.
3: Oh, yeah, I would like to which hear that. Which
0: is a song. It's you know an adult song, not a kid song, but it's about how he's hot because he's good looking, but also because he's hot, you know, physically, he's a Vulcan. So his right. body oh, temperature is cool. Higher. Yeah.
3: <laughs> I, I met there a lot of Trekkies out there who, you know, maybe you're you're inspiring me today. Maybe I should reach out to the tr- Star Trek world and say, here's a little uncovered gem that you might like. And
0: I think you should. Okay, so it sounds like you, you got started and then you got kind of just fell right into the Henson world and started working with Sesame Street. Um, and muppets and and I I've listened to your most recent album the uh thank you mr rogers it mm-hmm. was just delightful thank you and I love all the rogers music mr rogers music and I grew up uh listening to it
3: that's actually actually the second mr rogers tribute album I've put together I felt a little compelled not to repeat repeat myself too much yeah of course I had you had to do his theme song i mean there's just You can't get away from that, which is fine because we did it in a different way uh, with the council singing it. And that turned out good. And then if you've heard the album, which uh, sounds like you have, uh, you know that we did a Spanish version of it, which is really the only Spanish version of that song that exists on the planet. So,
0: yeah. Are there many Spanish Mr. Rogers songs?
3: No, uh, because he he didn't write them. I the uh, man who plays drums in my Beatles band that I play with we, uh, his dad was a translator in Miami and he uh, he did a a Latin version, a Latin lyric to it and I think it's amazing I mean to me it sounds like a it's almost like a love song it's so, and John Sicada performs it with such emotion and and dynamics it's, you know, my wife came down as we were recording it and she almost swooned <laughs> She doesn't swoon for me, but she swooned for John cicada, which I understand.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, with good reason.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, so what have you learned is makes a good kid's song? Like what makes a song, first of all, even a kid's song? And and how do you differentiate the two? And, and when you're working on children's music, how do you what are you thinking about? What are you trying to achieve with your music? Mm. That's
3: that's an incredible question. I'm sure you get that a lot too. And there's probably no one answer to it. Um, my gut reaction to that is maybe don't try so hard. I think some people are so so uh, focused on getting things, you know, I've got to reach this demographic. It's got to be for a four-year-old. And now I'm going to look up, like you said, the books and say, what, what point in development is that? I think you can, I think you can aim higher for kids than their demographic age. I think they can grow into songs, and if you skew them too young, then they're going to outgrow them almost immediately. So I, I like to, I, I think the first thing is to come up with a good song, just a good song, good something. For me, a song, a good song is one that has some melody, you know, preferably more than two notes, which is a lot of what you hear on the radio now. Now I sound like an old fogey saying that, but. But I come from the school of musical theater and uh, and pop radio, and I like to hear a melody that I can latch on to. And then um, just like writing so- songs that it, you would hope would be a hit, something that has a, a hook to it, something catchy lyrically. And then um, writing it in a, a fun or educational way, whatever the goal is of the song, but not talking down to kids, which thank goodness, um, there's so much less of that nowadays with you know, contemporary writers like yourself and other people. I think people have learned that kids are more sophisticated and we don't have to think, Here is a piece of chalk, take the piece, you know, it, it doesn't have It can be like it can be a song that you'd hear on the radio,
0: yeah. yeah. Well, so in that case, I mean, the, I think a lot of songs are can be for grown ups and also for kids. But I guess kind of the question is though what makes it different? What makes it a kid's song then? Mm.
3: It I guess the because there would be a kid listening to it.
0: <laughs> yeah. Is that the that's the main difference? Well well it's is it just the way you market it or no. like what makes a song a children's song specifically?
3: Mm. Well, I think it helps to have a, a child's brain, uh or put on a uh-huh. a little hat that, you know, puts you into more of a whimsical and a more innocent kind of uh, philosophy or, or outlook on life, and and just reach in to wherever that inner child is, and just and ride it with some wild abandon. I mean, I mean, just think of the things that we thought found funny when we were growing up. I mean, if you if you mention the word underpants, it's like yeah, uh, you know, oh, it's hysterical, <laughs> and it's like okay. Uh, and I guess there's some trigger words like that which you can still use, but um, I. I I don't know. I, it, it wasn't such a leap for me. I think, um, I think because I make an effort just to make sure that the song is good. And then I can, obviously, you know, you don't want to put anything that's inappropriate for kids, but, um, but I think if you are, I mean, look, kids love um, some early sixties music. You play a, a Beatles song or a monkey songs for kids and they're singing yellow submarine. It's like, you know, I'm amazed when I talk to young children and say, do you like the Beatles? Yeah. And they, and they know these songs. So
0: they love the Beatles, Mm -hmm. the Beatles in my rock camp, we always are covering the Mm -hmm. Beatles. They love yellow submarine, but they also love come together. (laughs) Right. You know, they love like, that's a big one that little kids like, yeah, I, I agree. I mean, that's kind of where my philosophy lies as well. A lot of my songs came from an, an album I intended for adults. And turns out they, little kids really like that too. You know, like I have a song called The Monster Under My Bed. It's a love song about being in love with the monster under my bed. And I wrote it kind of as an absurdist thing that I would perform right after I did a little stand up bit. And it was just a, it was just sound, the first half is just sounds like, a, you know, a sweet little song about being in love with the monster under my bed. And then I
3: startle
0: everyone by going right. you know, like to the microphone. And I was
3: doing that for grownups. Right. But but you're right. I mean, and well, Tam, you've answered part of the question. I mean, subject matter is important. I mean, you you can write a song for Monsters Under the Bed and it makes perfect sense for kids. Although an adult, a married couple could take it in a, in a different way, I suppose.
0: Yeah, I was definitely, it started out in a different oh, okay. way. Okay,
3: fair enough. But uh, I recently had a, and it also depends on if you're writing for a project you're putting together, which is a themed project, and you're writing, you know, songs about whales or whatever it happens to be. I had an assignment uh, that somebody came to me and said, "I need a song about um, this character." This it was an author who developed a character, uh, and she developed a number of books called "The World's First Tooth Fairy." So. Um, you know, then the minds, your mind starts to go at a million miles an hour. It's like, okay, what can I write about Tho- tooth fairy? And I learned a little bit more about the character. She was supposed to be a tooth fairy who was um, uh, kind of a go-getter. She, she likes to try different things and she was adventurous and she took chances and she, but she failed too. She made mistakes and had to correct her mistakes. So, all those kind of went into this funnel the, and uh, I, I got lucky. I, as the author was talking to me, all of a sudden, I thought the idea of winging it, I had this idea, winging it. That could be a song because she's a fairy. She's got wings. She's making things up as she goes. And I thought, this is perfect. Uh, the man who brought me onto the project, he wasn't quite convinced at the time. He said, I don't know, Dennis, uh, the, the, I'm not sure that's right. And I said, I just have a strong feeling about this. Let me, let me try it. Let me work on it some more. And that, and it turned out, well, I was happy with it and they were happy with it. So
0: That's great. That's yeah. That, I mean, that's such a clever idea. Did you write, um, does that end up being the title of the song? Wing yeah. Wing?
3: Yeah. It's, yeah. I, I don't know if, I don't know where you can hear it now. This is, this is all pretty new. And uh, uh, the, Author of the books, she's trying to figure out. Well, now that I have this song, what do I do with it? And I'm trying to help her. And you know, although it's like the blind leading the blind, because uh, you know, if there were ne- still CDs, I'd say, "Well, make a CD. We'll do a whole album of you know, fairy, uh, tooth fairy songs." But now it's, it's all Spotify, and that's still a world a world I'm learning my way around.
0: Well, it's been a really, I was just thinking about this today. It's been such a s- sudden shift, I think, with uh, the pandemic in 2020. I, I noticed this huge shift. I had just released a children's album at the end of 2019, and uh, the, my album Baby on the Subway, and I had CDs, and I was selling CDs after my shows, and people were, were still buying them. And, you know, CDs, oh, during, at the beginning of the pandemic, there was a kind of a, a period where, I got, you know, like on um, whatever the bandcamp.com, I got a couple sales of just my CD um, by people and teachers that I, that I had kind of promoted on Facebook. Um, And then after, you know, things came back at my new shows, I haven't sold a CD since.
3: (laughs) I feel your pain. Everyone just
0: wants to know my Spotify link and it's a huge shift. So I'm going to release another album soon and I'm not going to make a CD probably because who's going to buy it?
3: I know. <laughs> it's I mean, a
0: pretty drastic shift. It really dropped. Boom.
3: It it really did. I mean, you almost can't even give them away.
0: Um, I've been, I've tried to give them away. You're totally right about that. I've been like, well, maybe, you know, somebody can give this to your friend and people look at it like, okay, you know, and like one of my friends sent a picture of his son looking at the album art, but the CD was gone and they didn't have the actual CD. <laughs>
3: mm. Yeah. It, it's, I think it's sad. And, and, uh, I had a similar situation with this Mr. Rogers album. Uh, it came out right about when the pandemic was starting. And given the demographics of this album, yes, it's a, it can be for children because uh, it's all Mr. Rogers songs, but it's also, I created it to reimagine his tunes and give them a a, a new musical uh, kind of approach a contemporary yeah, approach, so, it's, it's, so uh,
0: absolutely. But
3: still, the demographics might still be an older a person buying uh, a Taylor Swift album may not buy a Mister Rogers album. But as long as there were CDs, the, that demographic was there, and now that demographic is there. But now that demographic is not so hip to Spotify. So it's a it's a st- strange and maybe a challenging. Not maybe it is a challenging thing for me with this album, which is why I'm so glad to be talking about it with you, because maybe somebody will listen and they will.
0: I'm I'm sure I already sent it to my family, but that was a while ago that I had sent it. I think the first time I heard it. Oh, good,
3: it. good. Well, thank you. <laughs> but
0: yeah, well, we love Mr. Rogers in in my house. <laughs> it's uh, yeah, it's delightful. I, you know what I like about this album is that yes, it's contemporary, but it also kind of has a vintage feel in the arrangements and like the instrumentation not like vintage, vintage, like the 60s, 70s, but like maybe not vintage, but it has this like kind of, I don't know, it has a very accessible sound and it doesn't necessarily sound like it was made like right now. You know, it has a classic sound, I would
3: mm.
0: say. That's my experience with it. Well, thanks. Just I think with the voices and the and the the harmonies and, and again, the arrangement. Um, so it feels kind of timeless in that way.
3: No, I appreciate you saying that. I mean, each song... Is so different, and each we tr- yeah. so we treated each song differently. For example, his song "There Are Many Ways to Say I Love You."
2: That's I
0: liked that one. That's
3: totally different. With
0: Vanessa Williams is that the, is that is that who sings that? That was
3: Vanessa Williams singing. Yeah,
0: Vanessa mm-hmm. Williams. Okay, that's what and
3: I thought. Yeah. she did an amazing job with it. And but the the arrangement is is pretty simple. It's mostly piano and violin, maybe some uh, string overdubs. Uh, but it didn't it didn't require a bombastic orchestra or anything like that because the song itself is so intimate and heartfelt and she sang it that way and the the arrangement supported her in that but at the same time it's a lot different from Mickey Dolenz from the Monkees singing his song because his song did have a little a little suggestion of a a 1960s thing there's a little sitar thing going on in there and Uh, and uh, Marilyn McCoon, Billy Davis, for your listeners who may not know those names, they are originally from the Fifth Dimension, which had a slew of hits through the 60s and 70s. Uh, Songs like Up, Up and Away in My Beautiful Balloon and things like that. And, uh, And I wanted to pay homage to their sound, so I...
0: That's what I'm noticing. I think. Yeah.
3: So, uh, and it was it was fun to do that. Not hopefully not over the top, but just something that fit these each artist and let them reimagine it and put their stamp on the song. And same with Kelly Pickler. I mean, obviously, we, she she has a totally different sound, and we gave it a little bit of a Mar- Americana sound. And and the joy of it is to hear how well all these songs work, Mr. Rogers songs in all these different musical styles. Because I think you probably would agree that a great song is one that can be done many ways. And that's, and but nobody thinks of Mr. Rogers in those terms. They think, oh, he's written these little juvenile songs that he sang on his show. And the way he did sing them on his show was perfectly appropriate, because he was looking to the camera and singing to a child looking back. But that doesn't take away from his songwriting abilities. His He really understood the craft of songwriting, and he was good at it. And I think he's really overlooked in that manner. So I've kind of picked up the, the gauntlet <laughs> and just ran with it. And I just want people to know that, yes, he was a, an amazing man, a, a wise and kind person, had so much to offer us in that respect but his music offers a lot too
0: i completely agree when i first started exploring his music as an adult i i remember being so taken by how you know well written they were I mean, they they're as good as any standard out there i really would maintain that and i went and i looked for kind of covers and i there's not that many you know yours exist there's that female jazz singer. Do you know who
3: I think I know about? who you're talking about. Mm-hmm.
0: She made a really nice album, uh, a Mr. Rogers album. And th- that that's about all I could really find. Plus, you know, Daniel Tiger now is doing their contemporary versions of his songs. And, you know, my little, I don't know, you know, the song Grown Ups Come Back. There's a song Grown Ups Come Back. One. And I don't know if he wrote it, but it's from Daniel Tiger. And it's in the spirit of him, of the way that mm-hmm. he writes music. It's a great song. But they're also singing uh, all, like they on Daniel Tiger, they have all the classic Mr. Rogers songs as well. Ah. So they're kind of coming out with these new versions of uh, some of the Mr. Rogers songs, but they're still kind of little kid versions. So I, I really appreciate that there's this, I, I'd say adult sounding, uh, sophisticated uh, covers of these really well done songs that you've released. Because I think they're well, great.
3: Well, I appreciate you saying that. And also this might be a good opportunity for me to say that in the midst of re-recording his music and gaining a new appreciation for his music, I've kind of started a grassroots campaign to get Mr. Rogers' music recognized and hopefully get him eventually into the Songwriters Hall of Fame. So so we started this little petition. And if uh, listeners want to go to uh, change.org, you can type in Mr. Rogers' induction into the songwriters hall of fame and it'll come up and you can cast a vote for him. And eventually I'm hoping that it will gain the attention of those people who make those decisions and give him the recognition he deserves.
0: Well, I'm going to go there too. I'm going to go right after oh, yay. this. Oh yeah. Okay. That, I, yeah. That's a great, that's awesome. Well, we're, I think we're I think up that's... to like
3: 2,300 um, wow. peti- uh, votes for him or not votes, but people supporting him. Signatures. And I think once we get yeah. to 2,500, then it, it self perpetuates itself. So it'll, it'll maybe gain some more recognition.
0: That's great. Oh, I hope so. That's, that's such a great idea. I think that's really valid. I'm glad that you are um, like, have you communicated with his family?
3: Uh, I was up until the time she passed, I was in touch with Joanne Rogers, his, his wife. who's was uh-huh. very supportive of the album. I'll share with you quickly because it's really meaningful to me. When I did the first album, uh, it took a while to get that done because not only to record it, but also to get the okay from the people who were running Mr. Rogers company at the time. And eventually after me pleading and prodding, they said, yes, sometimes people say yes to me just to get rid of me. and, (laughs) And it works. But, um, I was afraid of how they might react because I was taking these gems, these musical uh, treats of Mr. Rogers and doing what I thought needed to be done or could be done with them. And I didn't know how they would react. So I was kind of biting my nails as soon as the album was released. And I got a, a phone call from Joanne Rogers. She left a message on my machine. She said, Dennis, I just heard the album and I'm biting my fingernails. And she said, I, I want you to know that I loved it and Fred would have loved it. So, yeah, oh. that's all I had to hear. Uh,
0: that's exactly. That is all you would have to hear. Mm-hmm. That's so, oh, I almost cried here. Yeah, that. That, I'm so happy that, some, that you got to have that validation from her because I think it's so well deserved.
3: Well, I, I save that message every now and then. Uh, listen so to good. it.
0: Last question before we wrap up, what is coming next for you? Are you making another album? What are you going to be doing in terms of children's music? Oh,
3: uh, I don't have immediate plans to do an album. I've kind of always been a, uh, a, a hired gun. People will call me and say, right. hey, can you do this? Can you do that? And uh, I do uh, work for the Mother Goose Club. I don't know if you've heard of them. They've oh. got a pretty big following on the internet. And uh, they'll call Ooh. me to either write songs or to produce things. They do a lot of things in house that they just need a little tweak here and there. So um, I'm happy to do that. And I've got one assignment coming up now. And then um, cool. I think I told you uh, before we went on the air that I, I enjoy playing with my Beatles band. Uh, we call yeah. ourselves the Wanna Beatles. And. <laughs> And it's, uh, I tell people, you know, it's the, the most fun gig I've probably ever had. Um,
0: Wait, I didn't even ask you, what's your role? Who are you?
3: Well, we don't take on specific roles because we, we're we oh, not okay. a lookalike band. Uh, we okay. talked about that at one point. We said, well, we're kind of at an age where we look pretty silly trying to fit into those slim suits that the Beatles <laughs> had. But... Um, Whoever has the best voice for a certain song, everybody in the band sings. Even our drummer sings, and great. he's got a beautifully high voice, so he gets those roles. I I kind of go back and forth between John songs and Paul songs. Uh,
0: That's great. Oh, that sounds so fun. Yeah,
3: it is. So it's fun, and we we pride ourselves on being not just a cover band. We put together these interesting medleys or smash ups of their songs, and because we're all of a certain age, we, we throw comedy into the act uh, because I love yeah. writing parodies. Um, so I have a parody of yesterday called creme brulee. <laughs> uh, so I do that. Well, you know, That's funny. Whatever it takes just to have fun with the audience. And, uh, and we've gotten to play some neat places going on tour. So yeah, I want to keep doing that.
0: Well, good for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, thank you so much for coming on my podcast and for talking to me. It's been really interesting. I've learned a lot and I, I excited for people to hear this episode.
3: Well, you are a great host. It's a delight talking to you and seeing you, which yeah, I can see. Um you
0: know, Yeah, we see each other, everyone, mm-hmm. but you in, don't in see your, us. In your festive
3: <laughs> surroundings with music and plants and everything there. So uh, yep. I'm just glad to glad to know you and glad to be part of it.
0: Yeah, I look forward to sharing more music and talking to you, you know, going forward. Absolutely. This doesn't have to be it, you know. Okay. <laughs> All right. Let's go ahead and listen to Dennis's two versions of Won't You Be My Neighbor first the English one and then the Spanish one. Enjoy!
1: Este rincón, un día de amigos, qué bellos son. Pudiera contar con tu amistad. Siempre he soñado en una amistad así como tú. Siempre he soñado vivir cerca de alguien como De gran día hay que aprovechar Si juntos estamos podemos hablar Pudiera contar, pudiera contar De tu amistad por siempre
0: is produced mixed and mastered by me camille harris from the silly jazz band we're under at the silly jazz band on instagram and if you want to send us an email our email is sillyjazzband@gmail.com. at gmail.com
2: have a great day